Now, this morning, you may find that I'm uncharacteristically um, soft-spoken, and the reason is because I've lost my voice. Um, I've been preaching four or five times this week already. I've got three more times to go, including this one. So, uh, if I speak a bit softer and slower, you just uh, try to, you know, I mean, just bear with me for a little bit. And uh, I also want to uh, mention that for the, uh, the uh, moonlight under Queenstown, right, that... That's something that I'm realizing that we have to basically get tickets for our friends because it's quite unlikely for them to randomly just pick up a ticket to come, right? So please make that effort. All right, we're going to look uh, in our Grounded series. Today we're talking about good works. Last week, I mentioned in passing, uh, you know, we're talking about the need to embrace a cross, right? And cross is not just some, you know, religious cross, or not just some decoration that you wear, but the cross is a picture of suffering, your own suffering. Embrace that and looking beyond. You know, Jesus was able to look in Hebrews chapter 12 too at the joy beyond the cross. Right? And that's challenging, inviting all of us to do the same thing as Christians. And while I was talking about that, I mentioned in passing this uh, short, I guess, uh, narrative from Mark chapter 10. And uh, I'm going to go into that a little bit more today. So if you have your Bibles, maybe you'd like to turn to t- uh, Mark chapter 10 and verse 17 to 22. I'll just read the whole text here. Now as he was going out on the road, that's Jesus, all right? As he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus said to him, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So we have here in this uh, narrative, a rather familiar one I should imagine, a young man. Now we don't really know that he's young. Right? It mentions that he had kept his commandments from his youth, perhaps from his posture of kneeling before Jesus. You know, we infer that this man must have been younger than Jesus. So he was a, a young man. But for the sake of this story, just call him this young man. And we know that he was rich because he had a great many possessions. And he had come to Jesus asking a very, I guess, a common question. A question that all of us would ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I assume you are all interested in this. Right, are we? Okay, so we are kind of all interested in eternal life. And uh, somehow he had gotten in his mind that eternal life was something that was important, that he wanted. Now, today, uh, in the Christian world, we know Christianity has spread everywhere. We, we talk a lot about eternal life. But back in the day, in the time of uh, the early church, and actually even the time of Jesus, it's not something that's taken for granted, right? I mean, you roll the clock back, 300 years before that, the Hebrews really didn't think all that much. Not all of them thought about eternal life. For them, when you die, you go to a place called Sheol. Right? I mean, the world was flat, 
Heaven was up there, earth is here, and when you die, you go down. Right? That's, I guess you can say it's like cold storage. Right? You just go into cold storage, nothing much happens, and that's the end of it. Uh, whether you're rich, you're poor, you're good, you're bad, everyone goes to the same cold storage, and that's the end of it. But of course, this left some people you know, a little bit dissatisfied. So like, wait a minute, how can that be the case? You know, I mean, look, it's a terrible guy. He goes to the same cold storage as the, you know, the, the saint. So how does that work, you know? So I guess over time, uh, people, yeah, I, I don't have like, time to really talk about how this evolved, maybe for another class. But essentially over time, people begin to evolve in their thinking, right? And then by the time you get to the exile, and especially after the exile, they had started to think about, well, there must be something after this, right? Because this can't be the end. There must be some further reckoning. So in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 to 3, you see a... a inclination of this. So you see in Daniel chapter 12 verse 2, and Daniel is very late, you know, one of the last books to be written. And many of those who sleep in the dust, now this is not someone who never cleaned his house, he's huh? talking about someone who died, right? Sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Well, they have it. You don't just go into cold storage, you get, you know, I mean, defrosted after some time. Some to everlasting life, to eternal life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise, those who make good decisions in life, shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, which is just another word for sky. Right? And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the thinking here is that at some point after you die, in the future, the dead will be resurrected in some form. Now today, I think most Christians actually believe this, uh, but we, we do have a mishmash of ideas. You know, some people you know say, "Well, once you die straight away, you're with Jesus." You know, it means you're right there, right? And other people, you read Revelation chapter twenty, say, "After you die, well, you know, there's like a thousand years, and then you know Jesus will come and we'll all be resurrected together." Now, actually, the mechanics of it is not too important. Now, those of you who have uh, have you gone under anesthesia before, you guys? I did have some time ago. Uh, it was very interesting. It was, once I went down under, you know, just blackout. Then the next thing you wake up, all the time has passed, you didn't even notice it. Lah. So whether it's a thousand years, a thousand minutes, you know, it's not going to make much difference to you once you're in cold storage, right? So I think there's this idea that there will be a point of time that you are, well, be resurrected. But not just that according to what we just read in Daniel chapter 12, that this eternal life can go two ways. Some to everlasting reward, ever eternal life, and some to everlasting contempt. Right? So it's not just, just any eternal life. You want to be on the right side of eternal life. not very good if you have eternal life when you're on the wrong side of things. Right? So not all Jews actually believe this. Right? The, the Pharisees, they believe in the resurrection. Some of you may know that the Sadducees, they actually don't believe in the resurrection. And that's why they were sad, you see. So, they, not, all, not all Christians believe, uh, not all the Hebrews or the Jews, they didn't all believe the same thing. So that's why I say it's, it's not a, something to be taken for granted. That, but this young man, somehow, he had gotten in his mind, that, yeah, I believe that there's a resurrection, I believe that there's an eternal life, and I believe that, you know, somehow at the end, there's a two ways, right? There's a good and a bad. And the Jews, uh, they, they have come to believe this, right? 
Now, there were other religions in the region at the same time that had slightly different beliefs. Uh, some believe that there's a judgment after you die. Others believe that, you know, like the Greeks, they believe that when you die, you travel along this river, sticks, you know, and then you get to a place where they'll ask you some questions. And the key is that you've got to know the correct answers. If you know the correct answers, you're set. You don't know the right answers, well, too bad for you, right? So this has led to some what we call more Gnostic religions, people who believe that religion is about knowing the right answers, right? And uh, I remember a friend of mine uh, who, you know, actually in Singapore there are many other religions than the common ones. So she was part of this uh, religion where she was telling me that they have a secret word that they are told cannot be uttered. They can only use it when they are about to die, right? And you say it and when you die, you're good. So I was very curious, you know, say it's a secret. I like secrets, you know, okay? Tell me the secret. I said, no, 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 I told you, then you know, it won't be a secret anymore. Right? Then how do you know? You have to be a member or membership has benefits, right? So, so she won't tell me the secret. So, you know, what else do you do, right? Google? I Google, I found it, you know. So, <laughs> so I, I went back, hey, by the way, if you don't mind me asking, don't tell me now. Is this it? Is it? How did you know? <laughs> oh, Google, right? So, so, the Jews didn't have that. The Jews believe. Now you look at the question, right? This uh, young man says. His question is, what must I do? Not what must I know. Or what must I think? What must I do? Because in his mind, the judgment has something to what you do in this life, right? Doing. So Jesus' answer was very interesting. It was also a doing answer. He replied with the... Uh, the fifth to the ninth commandment, I've got a slide up here, you can see these are ten commandments, right? And Jesus' answer consisted of those commandments in the red box. Now, when you look at this list, usually the first four commandments, usually, don't, don't take it too dogmatically, the first four commandments pertain to loving God, right? Loving God. And the subsequent five, six commandments pertain to loving your neighbor. Right? This is the ways, of course, they are not exhaustive. They reflect some ways. Obviously, you can love your neighbors in other ways, very important ways as well, right? Uh, do not maybe, uh, do not um, I don't know what are some things you could right? do not abuse people, do not uh, tell lies and so stuff like that. So, when Jesus gave these five, right? Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, not, not in the same order, but I think what Jesus was basically saying is that you should love your neighbor. Now, why, why does Jesus say this, right? It's very interesting why Jesus, uh, why Jesus didn't tell the young man to love God because I think it was evident that this young man did have some love for God, so no need to say already. But Jesus selected this last uh, group of commandments to tell him. And the problem with these commandments, as you can tell, is that they are all prohibitive in nature. So they are about what you don't do. It's not about what you do. It's about what you don't do, right? And while they may capture the idea of loving your neighbor, it's actually not possible to love someone purely by not doing things, by being passive, right? You, you can't love your wife by not upsetting her alone, right? Because if you could, then the best thing a Christian could do is nothing. Because by not doing anything, then you don't break any commandments, right? So these are only a partial reflection of the broad commandments, love God and love your neighbor. So Jesus was telling, okay, these are all these things that, you know, talking about this group as a whole, love your neighbor. The young man says, okay, <laughs> I've done this. 
by which he means I'm not done any of this, right? I'm not stolen, I'm not <coughs> uh, committed adultery, I'm not murdered. I'm not done any. That's what he means by he has done it. When he says, I've done it all, meaning that I've not done any of these bad things. And then Jesus says to him, verse 21, loved him and said to him, look, you lack one thing. One thing you lack. Go away, sell whatever you have, give to the poor. <coughs> you have treasure in heaven, come, take up your cross and follow me. Okay, here's my question to all of you this morning, right? You're not going to just sit here passively and listen to me, right? So here's the question. You've read this passage before. you heard it just read. Not a new passage to you. What was the one thing that the young man liked? What do you reckon? Huh. It's a pearly gates question. We <laughs> go to heaven. What is the one thing that the young man liked? What, what do you think? Tricky one, huh? Never thought about that. Oh, yeah, really? You know, not that mention it. What was the one thing that he liked? Okay, I'm not going to torture you. I think while he kept the commandments in not doing all these things, perhaps he lacked the proactive part of it to do something for those people, for your neighbor, right? To love your neighbor in a proactive way. You know, growing up in evangelical circles, and when I say proactive way, I mean by doing works, good works for your neighbor, for people. Now, growing up in evangelical circles, it was drummed into us that we are saved by faith, not by works. Why, why talk about works? So much so that we begin to avoid talking about good works in case people will think that we are talking about salvation by works. But in reality, the Bible doesn't have such a strong dichotomy, you know, works and faith. It doesn't really talk about that. And in James chapter 2, um, verse 14, for instance, it says here, I don't have it on the slides, but it says here, what does it profit, my brethren? Chapter 2, verse 14. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, all right, there's this whole tension between the two. Can faith save him? Well, most of us will say, yeah, yeah, faith saves you. Only by faith. Sola fide, right? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James is very clear about this. Right? So I think we shouldn't be so afraid of works. And I'm going to clarify what are the works that we should avoid. Because in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul does say, he says that knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, it's not just any works. It's not, you're not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, which is true. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. <clears throat> Paul is specifically talking about the outward observance of religious rites without inward faith and love to God. Okay? There are some people who go through religious Motions, right? You go through your rights, you do the things, you say the right words because you want to get something out of it. You say, I'm going to do this because I want to be safe. I don't go to hell. So I'm going to do all these things. But ultimately, the inward motivation is this whole transaction. I'm going to give God this so that God will give me that. It's not really out of love. It is out of this business transaction that you're trying to you know, get something out of. 
Paul himself, in fact, did not condemn works. We're going to look at Romans chapter 2 today for a little bit before going back to Mark chapter 10. In Romans 2, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. But the first part of Romans chapter 2, Paul begins by saying that, you know, man is condemned by his own hypocrisy. Right? So you tell people to do what you yourself don't do, now this standard is going to come back and bite you in the end. Right? So you're going to be judged because you, know, you, you are accusing people of things that you yourself are guilty of. And when you do this, Paul says, you are accruing for yourself uh, punishment in heaven. When judgment day comes, God is going to use the very standard that you use against yourself and you're going to be in trouble. And then in chapter 2, verse 5 to 10, Paul goes on to describe how exactly God is going to judge them. And that's what we're interested in. So how does God judge people at this future point after they die? So it says here, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day. Right? You are accruing up to yourself punishment in the day of wrath and revelation. That is the day of judgment. Uh, and the ju- righteous judgment of God. Who will, now get this part, render to each one according to his deeds, according to his works. Wow, you know, when you read this the first time, it's kind of mind-blowing because you've been told all your evangelical Christian life that you know, works are not important. And yet here Paul, Paul himself, is saying that you, each one will be you know, judged according to their deeds, eternal life, to those who, are, who by patient continuance in doing good. The word doing good there in Greek is simply good works. That's exactly what it is, right? In good works, they seek glory, honor, and immortality. But to those, on the other hand, who are seeking, self-seeking, do not obey the truth, obey unrighteousness, they will get indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. On every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good or do good works, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul is setting up a comparison here. Right? There are two groups of people here. First group, they are self-seeking. It says this in verse 8. Actually, it's the second group. Right? They are self-seeking. They are into religion. They are religious outwardly. But they are ultimately self-seeking. The reason that they are into religion is to get something for themselves. They just basically want to save themselves. That's what it is. They want something for it for themselves. They are asking the question, what's in this for me? Right? I mean, okay, I don't mind helping other people, but mainly, what's in it for me? So Paul says they are self-seeking. This group of people, according to Paul, are bad news coming. And then on the other hand, you have in verse 7, another group of people. These are the people whom he says they seek, instead of self, they seek glory, honor, and immortality. Right? The Greek here is quite interesting, but let's just keep it to this. Glory, honor, and immortality. What does that mean? What is, whose glory? What kind of glory? What sort of honor? So I thought about this for quite a bit. I had to do quite a bit of research because this word glory and honor here is quite unique, right? It doesn't appear very often in the Bible, this combination of these two things. And then I was reading Plato. I happened to be reading you know, all Plato's works. And Plato also talks about glory and honor. But for Plato, this great famous Greek philosopher uh, who writes a lot of things, right? But he, he says that glory and honor 
is virtue. Is virtue, right? It's goodness of your heart. So this second group of people who are seeking for things that are good, virtuous things, not selfish things, things perhaps for other people. So I think maybe, maybe Paul did get that kind of notion of virtue from Plato's idea, perhaps, right? So what exactly is this kind of good work that Paul keeps talking about, about this, second, this group of people who are virtuous? Well, in a nutshell, it is the opposite of the works of the law, right? Things that are done out of ritual compliance. You don't know why you do it, you just do it, right? You don't know why, what it means, you just do it. And the reason you do it is because you hope that by doing all these things, you get something for yourself. So this is the opposite. Good works is the opposite of this. A good work here is something that you do for other people, not really wanting anything in return. That, that's kind of good work, right? Do for. It's not something you've done because you're forced to do it, or even out of sense of duty. But when you do something out of love, I think that's a virtuous work. So let's look at some examples, right? So this is kind of very theoretical. So Paul, fortunately, gives us a whole bunch of examples in his other letters. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28, here's this example. Let him who steal or who stole, steal no longer. Okay, so you're previously a thief, so stop doing that, not good. But rather, let him labor, let him work, working with his hands, what is good? But uh, that he may have something to give him who has need. Okay, so work is work. But work becomes good when the result of the work is the blessing of other people who have need. Right? So we all work. We are all working. It's neither good or bad. It's just working. But whether it good, is good or bad depends on whether it's self-seeking or whether it's virtuous. It seeks to bless other people. Are you following what I'm saying this morning? Right? Not, not very difficult. It's just kind of what the Bible says. But just in case you're not convinced, let's kind of look at others. Right? But basically, don't be selfish. Work hard so you can bless other people. Be generous. 1 Timothy Chapter 6, verse 18 to 19. Another example here, right? Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works. So there again, we have good works. Ready to give, right? So it's not to keep, but to give. Willing to share. And what happens when you do this? You store up for yourself a good foundation for the time to come. So there again, you have this idea of laying up treasures in heaven, right? What Jesus was telling the young man. You do this and you have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. So storing up for yourselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. There again, it's a, you know, I, I, I would feel a lot more comfortable if the connection between good works and eternal life wasn't so strong because of our own evangelical background. But you can't deny, it is in the text. Bible actually tells you that there is a connection somehow between good works and eternal life. I'm not saying that you will get saved because of good works, but faith without good works is kind of dead. It's basically what James is saying, right? So, good works, being willing to share. Titus chapter 3, verse 14, another of Paul's epistles. He says, let our people also learn to maintain good works. To meet Urgent needs, not your own urgent needs. Not like now, because I drink a lot of water because of my throat, I'm very urgent, I want to go to the toilet, right? Not that kind of urgency. It's other people's urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. Okay, here's another rather interesting one. Okay, so this one is quite interesting. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9 to 10, Paul is talking about widows now. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into a number, and not unless she has been the wife of, good, uh, of one man. So it's talking about a good widow, right? Well reported for good works. Okay, so this widow must have done good works. But what is good works? And then she gives a, a whole litany of examples here. If she has brought up children, okay, all of you who are bringing up children, guess what? Good work. Even though you may want to kill your children sometime, right? But this is a good work, according to the Bible. If she has lodged strangers, you have been hospitable to people who are traveling and they are in need. Wow, did you know that it's a good work? I mean, you go to heaven, God asks, how many times have you gone to prayer meeting? Oh, you know, many times. Oh, good. How many times have you lodged strangers? Huh? I didn't know that was one of them. Yeah, I'm sorry, it is. It's in the Bible, right? So, lodging strangers. If she has washed the saints' feet, okay, what does it mean by wash? I, I suspect what this is really is uh, kind of hospitality. Whenever people come to your house, you know, you give them water to wash their hands and their feet, basically indicative of you, you know, inviting people to have meals in your house and so on and so forth. Wow, really? I didn't know hospitality was that important, you know, especially in our culture where Singapore, not enough space, uh, you know, everyone is so crammed up together, so much so that uh, when you go home, uh, even though your neighbour is only like a few feet away, you really need your space. Uh. Okay, don't disturb me. Uh. I also don't disturb you, you know. Right? So, but turns out the Bible actually thinks hospitality is pretty good. If she has relieved the afflicted, you know, people who are suffering, she has helped them. If she has diligently followed every good word, wow, it's not just about giving money. It's also about bringing children, bringing up children, being hospitable, being kind and helpful to people, and you know, being welcoming, right? That's good works. Now, why are these good works so important? Why is such a big deal? Why is God so concerned with good works? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 tells us, right? Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, that's all of us who are traveling through this life and through this world, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. By having your conduct, your behavior honorable, see that word honor again, right? Honorable among Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, meaning that they don't like you, they curse you, they criticize you, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Right? So what, was, what, what does it mean here? It's, the idea is, is that actions can be more persuasive than words sometimes. And our kindness towards other people, our generosity, our hospitality, our willingness to go beyond our own selfish interests to look out for the interests of other people can be effective demonstrations of God's love even to those people who might be hostile towards you or may not be willing to hear your words. Many of us know this. You know, we have family members, we have parents who are quite hostile towards our choice of faith, right? our faith in Jesus Christ. They are angry with Christians. Right? They're not necessarily angry with God. They just don't like church. They don't like Christians. And they're not going to listen to what you have to say to them. Tell them, you know, the Bible says this and that. They're not going to listen to you. So Peter is saying that. But they can look at your works. They can look at your behavior. They can look at whether you care for them or not. Right? And that, I remember that bit about uh, the commandments. One of the commandments is filial piety, right? You must 
Love your parents, be kind to your parents, right? That's the first commandment with a, with a promise of long life. So, good works is not just one thing. It's in general a work that goes out of yourself, that's unselfish, that is not just about our own convenience, just not about what you are going to get out of it. And sometimes you may not get anything out of it. But it is good because it will accrue for you then treasure in heaven that ultimately you know, leads to eternal life of some sort. Right? So, <clears throat> these, are, these are things that are very important to the early church. I was reading this uh, letter. You know, there are many writings of the early church outside of the Bible. Right? And I, I actually read a lot of those. So one of these letters is a letter called Second Clement. And you say, I don't know my Bible. It's not in your Bible, right? But Second Clement comes from the second century, so about 100 something, about 100 years after the time of Jesus. And it was talking about prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Almsgiving is the giving to the poor, right? And then it makes this comment, you should pray, you should fast, and you should give alms. But almsgiving is better than fasting or prayer. I said, wow, really? <laughs> I mean, you know, we don't normally think like that. We think that praying is probably the best. Because it's a free one, right? Praying don't have to charge you anything. It's just anytime. I pray already. But almsgiving costs you something. But turns out, according to them, that's the best thing. Another early church writer, a guy called Justin Martyr, he was writing this whole letter to explain to you know, non-Christians what Christians do. Because there's a lot of people who malign Christians, who misunderstood Christianity. So he wrote this thing called apology. Right? It's not apologizing, but that's a way of answering these people. Within very long, very, very long writing. Huh? But somewhere in there, he describes a church service. So I was very interested. You know, years ago when I first encountered this, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I'm very curious to see what the early church right, in the second century was like. So he says this, I'm going to read to you. And on the day called Sunday, today, right, all who live in the cities or in the country, they gather together to one place, presumably because they didn't have Zoom back then. Right? And the memoirs of the apostles, that is the epistles, the Acts of Apostles, or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. You notice I always read scripture during the service, it's part of, partly because of this, right? And then, when the reader has ceased, the president, meaning the, the person who's preaching, the pastor, verbally instructs and exhorts the imitation of these good things. This is kind of like what I'm doing right now. Then we all rise together, we pray, as we before said, and when our prayer is ended, bread and wine are brought. We're going to have this Holy Communion. And the president, in the like manner, offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people ascend, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each. They're going to, everyone's going to have the Holy Communion and a participation of that over which thanks has been given. And to those who were absent, because some people were sick, couldn't come to church, a portion is sent by the deacons. We do this also, right? It's called Reserve Communion. People can't come. Sometimes our pastors will bring communion to their homes. Now, that's up to this point, I'm like, this is pretty great. I think they're Anglicans, you know, because um, very similar to... Our style worship, okay, they didn't have long singing up in front, right? But other than that, we're pretty close, pretty close to this. But there's one last part of the service in yellow up there. And then, at the end of service, right, they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit. And that means voluntarily. What is collected 
is deposited with the president who assists, actually the word here is a very old English word, but assists the orphans and the widows and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want or in need and those who are in bonds, meaning prisoners, and strangers sojourning among us and in a word, takes care of all who are in need. Okay, so when I first read this, I was like, okay, check, 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 check. Oh, the last part was this, you know. They church regularly on a weekly basis took care of the poor. You know, I'm happy to tell you that Church of Saviour does this. You know, back in 2020, um, during the early years of COVID, I was very concerned that, you know, in our community, there will be people who uh, struggle because they have lost their jobs. And so we made a suggestion. Can we pull our JSS? What is JSS? JSS is the government giving you money that belongs to you. Like, you, know? you give to the government, and now they decided they pity you to give you back some. Okay, so the JSS, can we pull it together in a fund? We call it Jire Fund, right? And you know what? We've collected like over $100,000 or something. Since that time until now, we have almost finished giving it all out, but we have been helping the poor in our midst, the people who are struggling for one reason or another, right? And people, and even some people who are outside of the church community itself. Guys, you have been doing this, right? So I want to commend you because, um, you know, when you go to heaven, you can say, hey, you know, we, we are kind of on the point here, right? We are, we are doing what the Bible, uh, what the early church did. Now, the thing that surprised me was that when we started doing this, I was a little bit worried, you know, that, oh, you guys got no money, you know, well, what should we do? How can we... Yeah, I, I, I don't, I, it pains me to see the community or church in need. But as it turns out, you guys didn't lose your job. Many of you didn't anyway, right? And many of you actually survived. You did okay. Then I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Right? It says here, God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things. God will make you sufficient may have an abundance for every good work. You know, God has blessed us so that we can do good work. Are you following me? Right? So God has blessed us so we can do good works. Now, sometimes I wonder, why does the Bible keep talking about money? Everything is about giving, you know, money, selling. So why is it always talking about money? I think there's a very good reason for this. Because you see, the state of the world for the greater part of human history has been in a state of economic need. People were largely poor, right? People didn't have what they needed. Life was a constant struggle for survival. And so the most obvious and practical need was to meet economic needs. People were poor. And even today, you know, this is the case in many parts of the world. We are incredibly blessed here in Singapore, in this part of the world. Sometimes we complain this, complain that. Uh, it's until you travel to some of these places that you realize that even the simplest thing that we take for granted is difficult. Plain water, for instance. Uh, it's not available in many places. Right? Many of you go to Indonesia, drink water only already, right? straight away. So this is something that we, we forget how blessed we are. So why does the Bible keep talking about money? Because I think uh, oftentimes, oftentimes, that is just the main need. But I don't think 
that loving your neighbour is only about money, is only about financial giving. Our world today, at least in the first world today, is no longer the same as the first century world. The greatest needs of the people around you is not necessarily financial. Right? Sometimes you want to give them your used Nike shoe. They also the one, right? Too smelly, right? I mean, there are other places they'll take whatever you have to give, right? And even the old, what, last time we used to wear Fong Kiong shoes and those, they will take your Bata shoes, they'll take, right? But now, oh, no, no, I only want certain brand of used shoes, right? And, and Singapore, we are so blessed that even people who are in need, uh, uh, they have choices, right? So if Jesus were here today, I suspect that many of these parables and illustrations they gave would not necessarily be centered around possessions and wealth. Right? He wouldn't necessarily ask you to sell everything you have and give to the poor. And many Christians will, oh, good thing. Uh, I was just wondering how I'm going to do that. Right? But possibly, he will bring up other aspects of human fear and insecurities. Loneliness, perhaps. Stress. Self-esteem. And so on and so forth. Other needs. It would not have been a rich young man. It could have been a lonely old man. Or it could have been a guy who has no friends. It could have been a girl with special needs. Right? Or it could have been someone who is a migrant in a new country who doesn't know where to start. All these are potential places where good works are needed. Okay? So why do you give to the poor? Remember we said, not just sell everything you have, give to the poor, is what uh, uh, we are told, right? So I think the reason for that uh, is given to us in Luke chapter 6, verse 32. Right? It says, but it, again, I don't have this slide on, but I'll just read it to you, 32 to 36, Luke chapter 6. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But you do good to those who do good to you. What credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. This is kind of irony here. Often you do things for people so that you have some credit. Right? So that that person now owe you. Ma. In Chinese you say, means I, I do you a favor, now you owe me a favor. That's the whole point. A lot of times you do things for people so that people owe you favor and you can call upon those favors in time of need. But here it says, what credit is it to you? Apparently this kind of credit God is not interested in, right? For even sinners will do the same. You lend to those from whom you hope to receive back. What credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. So you're lending, you're not giving. You're lending and you hope to get something out of it. There are many people, Christians, who say, you know, but, but, Pastor, I, I want to get something out of it. Well, you need to know, the Bible is saying that that's not good works. That's just self-seeking work. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward in heaven will be great. You will be, for you will be, Sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father is also merciful. Right? So what is a good work? A good work is something that you do not to get something in return, 
but often to people, the poor, who is unable to give you back in return. It's a proof of your goodness is that you don't want something back. Right? You're helping people. And also maybe perhaps you're going out of your comfort zone. So in conclusions, right? what can we conclude from all of these? I think in this season of growth, and God is doing many things, I think we want to grow ourselves. Our own spirituality needs to be challenged. Right? We don't just want to be the same uh, as you were always. So good works, good words, right? when you talk to people about God, good words, first of all, need to be accompanied by good works. Okay? Good words, which is necessary, but alone not enough, need to be accompanied by good works. And good works can come from giving expression to your love to different ones. It can come in the form of our attitude, our hospitality. You know, in among our staff, one of the books we are reading is a book called Unreasonable Hospitality. We are trying to, how can we be more hospitable? Because, you know, partly our Asian culture is not famous for hospitality. There are, there are places where you go to where they are quite naturally hospitable. I was in Turkey. After the earthquake, walking among the rubble, all the houses had collapsed. And while I was walking past these collapsed houses, the Turkish people would happily come up with a cup of tea and some sugar cubes and come in and sit down in the collapsed house. And I was, I was like, wow, you, you, you hardly have anything left and you're still being hospitable. And that's their culture. Asians, huh? Ah, pretend I didn't see you. <laughs> you just walk right past you. I didn't see you. Don't, don't disturb one another, right? I mean, we, we know who we are. So we are trying to be hospitable. And you know, in this book, I was reading about this example of this restaurant upmarket New York restaurant, you know, and they were trying to be hospitable. So when the guests come in, they ask the guests, you know, where do you park your car? You know, some roadside parking on uh, Main Street, New York. And, and then the restaurant uh, staff will take note of the car and when it's time, they'll go out and top up your parking meter for you. So, wow, that's like next level hospitality, man, Right? So maybe in church, uh, we get some stuff, go out to the open-air car park there and just top up. Are you, I don't know what exactly is it, right? But I guess hospitality is more important than we think. In church, even, we have to learn this. You know, years ago, we had a, someone come to church. He was a guest, first time in church. And after the service, this person was looking for water. Now, you know, in church, we don't normally give out water to everybody, Right? Uh, but the speakers uh, will normally have water in front. Uh, like, you know, voice already need water, right? So this person came, uh, I'd like to have some water. But the, the answer she got was, oh, okay, that's only, only speakers can have water, lah, you know. Yeah. I was like, they mean, no, no, water's so cheap, well, you just give, lah, whoever wants, just give, yeah, right? So I think we need to make some intentional change in our own attitudes to people. To, to just, instead of just doing the things that we are used to doing, you know, but to think about how can we be kind to other people? How can we be hospitable? How can we be more attentive to people who are around us, who might be in need? Now, this is not always pleasant. Some of these people you're helping, they, they, they may be seeking to take advantage of you, you know. I mean, that's just life, right? But it doesn't detract from the fact that we should be virtuous. So really, many things. My wife is trying to be kind by buying some of these uh, moonlight uh, tickets, you know, uh, for friends uh, in a school. And, and maybe that is one way. I'm, I'm also going to try and you know, invite some of my neighbours uh, who I perhaps didn't talk to as much as I ought to 
But I see them every day when they are walking their dogs. So I'm going to try and you know, maybe get them some tickets for the show. Perhaps that's something we can all do, right? Hospitality, kindness, welcome, generosity. And when needed, giving. When needed, don't be stingy, right? Give. Secondly, good works come from a good heart. It comes from a virtuous heart. It comes from not thinking about what can I get in return. Well, the true answer is you're going to get everything back from Jesus. Right? You're accruing from it. Jesus says, you will have treasure in heaven, but not in your bank account right now. Okay? So that may not happen. Nevertheless, God will bless you. So when you do this, be generous. Don't, don't, don't be stingy. Don't do it grudgingly. Right? Philemon chapter 14. Uh, no, chapter. Philemon has only one chapter. Right? So verse 14. Philemon 14. There's not even a chapter to it. Philemon verse 14 says, But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed, your good work, might not be by compulsion, but as it were, voluntary. That can only come from a good heart. When your heart is no longer the kind of very selfish heart, when your heart is no longer thinking about yourself, what you can get, how you can get, you know, how much you can get, but you do it, yeah, I don't have to do this, but you know what, I want to do this. It's not duty, not responsibility, but love. So good works come from a good heart. Third of all, good works come with a good reward. Right? There is a reward. Uh, and even an eternal reward, as it were. But the best of good works must be accompanied by God's work. It must be accompanied by God's work, which is the work of God is mostly in Jesus Christ. It must be accompanied, which, without which all our good works will be in vain. Right? But it is with God's work, with our good heart, and doing a good work, we can have a good eternal reward. Let me close with uh, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18. It's a verse that uh, you know, John writes to the church. He says, My little children, that's all of you here, right? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Right? It's a really good uh, summary of all that's been said. So, I guess I'm saying that in this season, we need more than just good words. We need to do it. And even if we are not used to do it, let's just start doing it anyway. It's good. And that's a reward to it. Amen? We close our eyes as we pray. But we thank you for this reminder for all of us who seek, I guess, eternal life, but you're trying to lead us to seek love instead. So Lord, would you give us a virtuous heart, every one of us, a good heart so that we will not always be preoccupied with our own needs, but we'll become like God. Because God is merciful and kind, that we too will become merciful and kind. And Father, we pray that our mercy and our kindness, our good works, will become evident. It will shine a light to the rest of the world, that they can see you and not just hear the words that we say. That our actions will speak as loud, if not louder, than our words. In the name of Jesus, we ask and we pray. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand together as we sing this closing song?
church. I hope you don't mind a bit of Bible study. Was that okay for you guys? Not too hard, nah. The word of God is important because you know that's the key to life, the key to growth. So as we look at this, let's not just be hearers of the word, but let's be doers of the word. All right. So let's go from this place. May the Lord cause your doing to shine like a light for Him. Lord, we thank you once again, and Lord, may may you cause your grace and blessing to be upon all of us sufficient so that we can abound in good works Lord to others and now as we go from this place we ask that your blessing the blessing of God the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit be with all of us our family our loved ones and also those people that are around us now and always Amen Amen service is over do join us hospitality outside if you are guests do join us at the uh, guest table God bless all of you